Good morning and welcome to Hickory Grove. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to the book of Revelation. As I mentioned earlier this morning, Revelation, we're going to be in chapter 5. It's the last book of the Bible and it will serve as the last installment in our five-week series on Advent. Now, as you're turning there, you ought to know that our senior pastor, Clint Presley, he is not here today. He has a much-deserved day off, but he will be back here next Sunday to kick off a new year. So I invite you to join us next Sunday for a new year in God's Word. Now, as you're thinking about a new year in God's Word, I want to also encourage that you make use of a resource we're providing beginning today. I'll talk about this even a little bit in the message later on, but we have published a new through the Bible uh, reading plan for you that we want to encourage you to use with us for this coming year. We're actually offering two. So there's a through the Bible, which will get you from Genesis to Revelation, and it's actually an 11-month plan. And then the 12th month, December, we'll have a little special Advent series for you. I highly recommend that plan. Or if maybe this is the first time you've attempted to start engaging the Bible on a daily basis, a good first step might be our second plan, which is a New Testament plan. It'll get you through the last 27 books of the Bible, which we call the New Testament. So grab one of those. They're in the lobby, and you can grab one on your way out. Or we're going to make these available online, and they're part of our app. So download the app for free. You can go through the plan there or pick one up and read through the Bible with us in 2021. Okay, now let's get to the Bible, Revelation 5. I mentioned that we are at the end of this series. We began it five weeks ago, and if you recall, this series about Jesus' coming began with the promise as early as the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, where God promises that he would send one finally and decisively to end all to bring everything to a conclusion. Well, we reached this great culminating point at Christmas. The promised one is here. He has fulfilled the promise. But now what? That was some 2,000 years ago. Now what? Has the promise been fully fulfilled? Is this great hope and joy and excitement of Christmas done? Today you will see that this promise is fully and finally and ultimately fulfilled not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we meet the Jesus who came as a man. It is fully and finally fulfilled in Revelation, where we see this Jesus finally do what he intended to do. And so, don't take my word for it. Let's read Revelation 5 together. If you found it, I invite you to stand with me, and we'll read together God's word. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read through verse 7, and then we're going to pick up beginning in verse 8, and we'll actually pick up the rest through this message. But let's just read the first seven verses to help us orient our minds. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1. We're entering now the throne room of God, where John is having this vision. Beginning in verse 1, John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. The scroll was written within and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? Who's worthy to open this scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven, no one on earth or under the earth, 
was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So I began to weep loudly because nobody was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's conquered so that so that he can open the scroll and he can open its seven seals. And so between the throne and the four living creatures and among these elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And this lamb had seven horns and it had seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so this lamb went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, we desperately need you to come and help us make sense of an otherwise bizarre, highly symbolic, altogether foreign text. So use me in spite of me to build up your people, to strengthen their faith, and to grant them the hope that I see in this text. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One day, hope and history will rhyme. That doesn't sound right to you. Try this. One day, every tear will be wiped away. One day, all cancer will be cured. One day, all viruses will be vanquished. One day, all quarantines will be quashed. One day, all oppression will cease. All depression will disappear. One day, every wrong will be made right. Now those are words of hope, but the truth is you and I both know Hope and history don't rhyme. There's one thing I remember from English, those two words don't rhyme. You know this. Just think of history for a second. I mean, you go open up a history book. I love to read history. I read books all the time, and they're just tales of death, decay, and destruction. Almost all of them. You know this from your own history. Some of you are looking back at the years of marriage the Lord's given you, and it's hard to find hope. You've been praying for your wayward child for decades, and it's hard to conjure up hope. 2020 has been a sufficient reminder for you that in the rearview mirror, it's really hard to get this sense of hope. It's hard to look optimistic straight ahead. So if that's you today, and you could fill in the blank, there's a variety of ways you presently might be struggling to hope in God. If that's you, I want you to see with me that this text, Revelation chapter 5, this is a text for the hopeless. And what it does, and this is what I want you to see, it's pretty amazing, it centers all of our hope on what just was celebrated 48 hours ago. It centers our hope on this great Christmas story and what flew, what flowed from it. 
You see, what this text does is it kind of serves as an exclamation point on the Christmas story. It serves as the coda for every Christmas carol you've ever sung. It serves as this, oh man, it just serves as this climax of the story that began in Genesis. And it's just building and building and building and building, and this is the peak of the story. I want you to see that in all seriousness, Revelation 5 could be described as the reason for the season. So what I want you to see today is that as we go through this text, you're going to notice that the hope of history is the coming of Christ. The hope of history is Christ's coming. Now, we see, it's kind of hard maybe to see that because if you just read this with me and you're a literal person, you just want to picture what was read, this is one bizarre, almost scary scene. You read this and there, I mean, this will give you nightmares if you try to picture that multi-eyed lamb bleeding. What do I do with this? John is writing in symbolic language. So remember, it's not meant to be read literally insofar as when he says he sees these things, he is in fact pointing to something greater. The point of this tale is not to see a weird looking lamb. The point is to see what it represents. And so I want you to just see at the beginning, John sees something. And what does he behold? He beholds one seated on the throne and there is something in his right hand, which we should know from antiquity that the right hand is a hand of power. And within this hand is a scroll. Now this scroll has a few things about this that we need to pay attention to. This scroll, it says, is written on both sides and it's sealed with seven seals. The imagery of this scroll should probably draw all of our minds to the imagery of an, an old deed that would have been used many years ago to declare that you have full rights, authority, and control over whatever that deed is to. And so in context, what is happening right now is John is seeing God with his right hand of power open, and there is a title deed to the earth on it. He is seeing, in other words, a visual of God being in control of all history. Everything is in his right hand. He has full control. Moreover, he has total control because it's written on both sides. It's showing that everything that's transpired in history has been under his sovereign grip. And do you notice it's sealed with seven seals, which should draw to our mind that guess what? None of us can open it. It's sealed. He has soul control. This is a sovereign God who has all of history in his hands. And you need to see not just his control. I want you to see the goal he has with history. Because the imagery John is bringing to our mind is a picture of what God is going to do with this scroll. He is standing there with a hand open. All of history, as it were, is laying in his hand. And we're about to hear an angel cry out, who can open this scroll? Who has the ability to do something with history? Who can finally bring this story to an end? Who can make right everything that is wrong right now in history? Who, in other words, is our hope? And what I want you to see today, as we unpack the imagery of opening this scroll, brothers and sisters, I want you to see that Jesus is the hope of history. Because number one, you have no other hope. Number one, 
You don't have anywhere else to turn. I want you to notice what the angel says. In verse 2, it says, A mighty angel standing beside this one enthroned in heaven. He cries out with a loud voice, Who is worthy? That word literally would mean, Who is qualified? Who has the right to open this? Who has the ability to end history? Who can do it? Who is able to right every wrong? Who is able to heal every disease? Who is able to fulfill all of our hopes? And just listen. As that angel's voice echoes throughout all creation, you can imagine with me a few faint responses, couldn't you? you can you imagine the proud saying, I'm worthy. Could you imagine the cynical hearing this angel just wanting to cry out, who knows who's worthy? Who really cares? Can you hear a self-righteous religious person saying, well, I'm trying to be worthy? Can you imagine the political just saying, if only this changed, if only I had power, then I would be worthy? The angel's cry goes throughout creation. This text says, and it has reached your ears this moment. And my question to you is, what's your reply? Brothers and sisters, he is asking you this moment, who is worthy? How will you reply? I want you to see what happens next, because the reply that comes should stun us. I want you to see first off in verse three, what is the response? And no one who dice not even one person could respond. So before I explain that, I want you to see this with me. Jesus is your only hope because you have no other hope, so stop looking around for hope. Don't look around. The temptation for each of us is to just look somewhere so that we can have something tangible to hold on to for hope. And the response in verse 3 is, who is worthy? No one. And do you notice he says in heaven? and on earth, and under the earth. That means the angel's cry has made its way all the way to the courts of heaven. And all the angelic hosts have heard the cry, and they're silent. The archangel Gabriel, silent. Michael, silent. All the redeemed saints in heaven, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Moses, you name it, Job, John the Baptist, they stand there with lips sealed. It has made its way to heaven. It says the angel's cry has made its way to earth. And there is not one on earth that has responded. All the philosophers of history, silent. Socrates can't say a word. Plato is mute. Aristotle can't say a thing. You fill in your favorite philosopher, he's silent. All the religious leaders of history, silent. Confucius can't say a thing. Muhammad can't say a thing. The Pope can't say a thing. Joseph Smith can't say a thing. Silence. All the political ruling leaders of history can't say a word. Alexander the Great, silent. Your favorite president, silent. Every leader known to man silent. There is silence in heaven. There is silence on earth. And it says the angel's cry has even made its way under the earth. And there is not a word. 
even Satan, this great morning light, this star, this beautiful fallen angel, this great deceiver, Lucifer on high, even Satan himself, he is silent. All the demons of hell are silent. All the people who have not trusted in Christ, the damned, the Bible describes, they are silent in the grave. There is none who can answer the question, who is worthy? Brothers and sisters, we don't have any hope anywhere else. So stop looking around. You're not going to find it in heaven, earth, or under the earth. No one is able to respond to the inquiry of the angel, who is worthy? But what does John do then? Look with me, if you will, at verse 4. After seeing utter silence, it says John breaks down. And it says in verse 4 that he just begins to weep loudly. He just can't control himself anymore. He just starts to break down. Now, this should stun us because take a step back with you now and consider your own habits. When you consider the hope you have, so let's just think about our own lives for a moment. When you get down, when you get concerned, when you start to wonder what is going to make things right around here, what is your temptation? Your temptation is either to look around, which we have, I think, pretty decisively determined is fruitless. There's not a voice in heaven, earth, or under the earth that's going to do you any good. So then when that fails you, what do you guys tend to do next? You tend to look away. You ever found yourself doing this? When life gets tough, you distract yourself. You self-medicate, whether it be through something as trivial as eating or something that could be more consequential like too much drinking or other substances. You ever find yourself self-distracting, just absorbing yourself in your hobbies, just getting all consumed in something that's just distracting you? That's a temptation is for us to just look away. And John can't. John has been sobered. John has a serious, realistic view of the world's condition and of his condition. And so what does he do at that moment? It says he breaks down and he weeps loudly. This is an unrestrained, uncontrolled cry. John is really disturbed right now. And I think the... I think the indicator we need to pick up on when we see John respond this way is we need to recognize if you actually have a sober view of reality, if you actually finally stop distracting and medicating yourself, you stop looking around and you just take reality seriously, if you have a real serious view of history and what's happening right now, the only right good proper, sane response is to cry. It's to weep. It's to mourn. And so this morning, if you have been looking for a long time for some hope, and you just keep looking, the latest book, the latest fad, you're just hungering for something, maybe this church is one in a million churches you've been visiting because you are just longing for some sort of hope, my plead with you is to stop looking around. My guess is for more of us in this room, if you have just been trying to numb yourself, distract yourself from the harsh reality that is right now, my call to you is to stop 
And I'm not calling you to just fall down and cry. This would be a terrible message. Mercy. Here's what I'm calling you to see. I'm calling you to see that though John wept because he took reality seriously, there's really good news. There's an elder, the next verse says in verse 5, who shakes John, wakes him up. There's somebody who comes and tells John, hey, listen, brother, you don't need to cry. You don't need to weep. What I want you to see is that if you are hopeless today, number two, if you're taking notes, mark this down, not only do you have no other hope, number two, you don't need any other hope. There is a hope that will be sufficient for you. There is a hope that will sustain you unlike anything else you could ever conceive of. There is a hope that nothing around will ever fulfill, and there is a hope that no looking away will ever replace. I want you to see, number two, that there is a hope you desperately need. For, in verse 5, what does the elder say? One of the elders, which by the way, everything's symbolic, the elder is representing saved people. He's representing the redeemed. So the elder actually stands in for we believers. This believer looks at weeping John and says, verse 5, weep no more, John. I've got good news for you, John. I know it feels dark right now, John, but there's light at the end of the tunnel, John. John, look. Behold is the word he uses. Look. Now, what does he say to look at? Does John say, look, a new government. Look, John, better education. Look, behold, John. Finally, the political savior we've longed for. John, just look. Stop crying, brother. There is more freedom ahead. There are better markets ahead. John, look. There is the spouse you've always wanted. John, look. All you've wanted is right here. What does John tell us to look at? Weep no more, brother. Behold. And what does he tell us to behold? He tells us to behold this lion and this lamb. Now I'm going to jump to the point for all of us who may not be abundantly clear. Who John is pointing to is Jesus Christ himself. He is saying the hope you need is in this person right in here. But we're not going to stop there. I want you to see how he describes this Jesus. And this is important. Because we make Jesuses in our imagination. There are perhaps some in this very room who are worshiping a Jesus that, biblically speaking, is an idol. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a Jesus of your imagination. I want you to see the Jesus that John beholds in Revelation 5. He says, look, John, there is this Christ. There is this one who he describes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's bizarre. And the root of David. Here's what I want you to see as we look at these words. First off, this will be kind of like a sub-point to number two. I want you to see that Christ has done all you need. You need no other hope because he's done all you need. And we see that through these names. First off, I want you to see in verse 5, when he says that he was born of the tribe of Judah, this is John pointing back to a promise you probably forgot. In the book of Genesis, chapter 48, Jacob, and you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had all these boys. 
And Jacob prophesied over all of his boys in Isaiah 48 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when he did that, he said something about one of the boys. And he didn't expect it. You know, he was all in love with Joseph, gave him the coat. But there was one boy who got a whole lot of praise in this prophecy that they never forgot. It was his boy Judah. And he said, one day, Judah, somebody's going to come from you. There's going to be a lion that comes from you. And he is going to rule. The scepter is not going to depart from your family, Judah. They never forgot that. And then later, many years later, another prophet came. And this prophet was named Isaiah. And Isaiah came and said, this guy that was prophesied by Jacob all the way back coming from Judah's family, this guy is also going to come from David's family. David was this great tree in Israel. He was this beautiful king that everybody loved. And then he died. And the tree was chopped down. And what happens when you chop down a tree? What's left? A stump. And he says, there's this stump. There's this root. And out of this stump, out of this root, Isaiah said, is going to grow a little twig, a little branch. Somebody's going to come from this stump, and he is going to be the one you need. So here's what I want you to see. Christ has done everything for you because, as we see in these names, first off, he was born for you. He fulfilled all the prophecies God gave about this one who would come and fulfill the promise, this one who would come and bring hope to humanity, this one who would come to save us from sins. Jesus was born for you, but he doesn't stop there. Because after describing this root, then he uses this word, this root, this lion, he conquered. Now put that word on the shelf, we're going to come back to that. And then it says in verse 6, he saw between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, what did he see? Now stop. He was told, look at this lion. So he decides to look. And what does he see? Does he see a lion? He sees something far less impressive. In fact, he sees something that is positively bizarre. Verse 6, I saw, expecting a lion, I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. Jesus, this lamb, who John in the Gospel of John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was pictured as this arnios, which in the original language is a little baby pet lamb. It's the cute little lamb you'd keep in your house, you'd, you'd love, and then you would bring as the Passover sacrifice. This was not an impressive creature. This was a sacrifice. And he says, I am seeing this great promised one who's going to bring all hope to you. The, pro the source of all of your hopes and dreams, brothers and sisters, is this little tiny pet lamb. And this lamb is, looks as if it were slain, which means this lamb is profusely bleeding out. This lamb is a gory feature. If you Google this on the internet, you will find old medieval paintings attempting to depict Revelation 5, and I recommend you not do it before you go to bed because it is one bizarre, scary, it would not be something I'd hang in my office. This is a bizarre image, but it gets even more bizarre because this lamb does not just bleeding. What does it say about this lamb? This little baby pet lamb that is bleeding out as if it was violently slain. It says he's standing. What? You don't see a baby pet lamb that's been violently slain stand. Because what John is seeing is he is seeing one who was born for you, 
He is seeing one who died for you, but he did not stay dead. He sees one who is resurrected for you, who has been raised, who is standing decisively. There is before him a great Savior who was born as prophesied, who died as prophesied, and who is raised as prophesied right now. And then he gets the imagery even a little more wild. Because he then says, now take a closer look. This lamb is not just standing. This lamb is covered with an unusual scene. It says in verse 6 that he has seven horns. Now horns, in the Bible imagery, a horn is representative of power. And when you see uh, the seven eyes, that's representative of knowledge, knowing all things. And then you see the seven spirits, that's representative of the Holy Spirit. So what you have is John telling us this lamb who was slain and who's standing before us, he is reigning as an omnipotent, omniscient, an omnipresent being. In other words, what John has told us in the most enigmatic way is that we are beholding a man who has born, died, raised, and is ruling as king. This is none other than Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, take heart. You need no other hope, for Christ has done all you need. He was born for you, he died for you, he was raised for you, and he is reigning right now for you. But where does that leave us today? I want you to see that you, he has not just done everything for you. Let's look in the future now. Secondly, he will do everything for you one day. For what does he do in verse 7? Verse 7 is one of the most stunning verses in all the Bible. If you have an appreciation for what's happening. For this angel who had cried out, who is worthy, and none in heaven, earth, or under the earth could say a word, this angel who cried this out, all of a sudden there is this gory, slain lamb standing, and he comes to the throne. And in verse 7 it says, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This lamb came and did what none in heaven, earth, or under the earth could do. This lamb came and did what is impossible with man. In other words, what this is depicting is that one day Jesus is going to come and he is going to right every wrong, heal every disease. He is going to wipe away every tear. He is going to make, brothers and sisters, all things new. But that day hasn't come yet. So wherein lies our hope? This is why Christmas is supposed to be such a season of hope. Because it is is the first tangible demonstration of God's faithfulness to do this. This is why I love O Holy Night, which says, A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A weary world can at last rejoice because God has finally initiated the fulfillment of His promise. He sent this one to be born. He sent this one to die. He sent this one to raise. He sent this one to reign. And one day, verse 7 is going to happen. One day, He is going to come again. He is going to take the scroll from the hand of Almighty God, and He is going to make all things new. And so, weary brothers and sisters here and online, rejoice. 
Take heart, Christ has come, and He will come again. Which is why verses 8-14 through 14 just resonate. Because when you consider the glory of what Jesus is about to do, you can't help but do what verses 8-14 through 14 do for us. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And it says they had in their hands a harp, they had in their hands a bowl of incense, and they started to sing a new song. And they sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then he looks around and he starts to hear around the throne and the living creatures, all these angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. And they join the chorus and they say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is why Handel in his famous Messiah, which we all love at Christmas, that whole great uh, program ends with this verse. The final song is, Worthy is the Lamb, where he cries out, Worthy. And then it says, All creation in verse 13. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea and all that is in them. They all said to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all the living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a description of the response we will in eternally do. Verses 8 through 14 are your future, brother and sister. Your destiny is in God's hand, and your future is as bright as verses 8 through 14 are. Time does not permit us this morning to pick this apart. It would be great if I had a second sermon to do 8 through 14. I just want to conclude, though, with but a few pointers. This is not intended to be a true exposition because we don't have time. Let me just leave you with a few things to chew on from this response in verses 8 through 14 that I pray will serve you in this new year that the Lord gives you. Did you notice that when they fell down, what did they have in their hand? It says they had a harp. Now, interestingly, there is some debate, but there are several scholars who will say the imagery, the symbolism of that harp shouldn't necessarily draw our minds to music. It should actually draw our minds to another use the harp had routinely in the Old Testament. And that was of prophecy. For whenever there was prophecy occurring in the Old Testament, there was routinely a harp right there. And so when they fell down with the harp in their hands, they are symbolically falling before God saying, Your word has been trustworthy. All you said was true. So I'm falling down before you with this harp demonstrating symbolically that I can trust your Bible. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to call you this year. The way you ought to respond to this glorious news is that you ought to take the Bible seriously this year. Trust what He has said. Give yourself to the Bible. If you are hopeless, if you are struggling, if you have been spiritually dry, if you have just found yourself in a bad place this year and you are not in the Word, that is the first diagnosis. That is the first prescription. Give yourself to this book. Take it up in 2021. And notice what they do next. They fall not just with the harp. They fall with a bowl of incense. And he even gives us an indication of what this represents. 
This golden bowl of incense, it pictures all the prayers of the saints. And so I want you to see not only, you ought to trust not just what he said, trust that he hears you. Trust that he is hearing you. If you have been praying for some time and it seems that God has not heard you, Brothers and sisters, I am calling you this morning to fight the fight of faith by staying in prayer. Continue to bring those because this picture tells us that one day all the prayers of the saints will be poured out before Him. He hears them all. There will be none that go wasted. He is going to hear the cries of His people. So pray, read, and then join all creation in this new song. Join this heavenly cosmic chorus that proclaims the worth of Jesus, who is the only, only, only hope we have. So for those of you today who know, I mean, you just know that you don't have hope. You haven't tasted it. For those of you today that just say, the world is broken, and I see it, and I feel it, and I wish there was some way to fix it. For those of you today that just are weary that nothing's ever going to change, there is no silver lining, my call to you today, as the elder of old said, is to weep no more. There is one who will fulfill all of your hopes and desires. There is one who will do what you cannot. There is one who will meet the needs you don't even know you have. There is one you were made for. This Jesus has done all you need and this Jesus will do all you need. So give yourself to this Jesus. Confess that you are a sinner and that you need Him. And the Bible declares with full assurance that if you just confess with your mouth that He is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. But I trust for the vast majority in this room today who know you have hope, but you're just in all candor, you feel weary. This has been a long year. And there's things going on that nobody knows about in your life. If you are wearied today, I want to call you to remember He is worthy. Remember that. He's worthy of what you're going through this moment. He always has been, He is presently, and He will always be worthy. And so, would you join me in this fight of faith? Would you put on the armor of God? Would you pick up this book? Would you get on your knees in prayer? Would you join in this cosmic chorus of all creation and fight this fight of faith till one day, at last, hope and history will rise? Would you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed, I'm yet again calling each of you to respond in your own heart. And you can do this by silently crying out to God and saying, Oh God, I am hopeless. I need the hope that this word promises. Would you open my eyes to see it? The elder told me to look and I can't see, Lord. Open my eyes to see. I want to see you. For those of you that have seen, ask God to wipe the tears from your eyes and to see with new fresh eyes the glory that is the Lamb that was slain, the hope of all creation, the one who alone is worthy of our praise. Father in heaven, now I ask that you would do this. That you would do what I cannot, and that's open the eyes of your people to see. Help us to behold. Lord, we need to behold that you are worthy. 
Help us to see, O God. We confess that we are blind, we can't see. Do this, I pray, for the glory of your name and the good of this church. In Jesus' name, who alone is worthy.